coming to you from the lab where they talk about guns, gear, training, and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Mike and Big Key, and this is The Gun Experiment. How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Gun Experiment. This week, Keith and I are proud to bring you a very special episode with an in-depth interview about the downfall of the NRA. To get the show started, let me introduce my counterpart across the table, my co-host, the one, the only, Big Keith. Keith, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing very well. It's good to see you, Mike. Happy to be here. Yes. Excited to, to talk to this guest. Yeah, this is not our normal schedule, but this was a great, great opportunity, and uh, we actually got to read a book. Yeah, listen, I had haven't been forced to read a book that fast <laughs> in since high school. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it it was a really uh, great read, and I was able to rip right through it. I don't know about you, but yeah, I, I got I, I got through it pretty quick myself. Yeah, yeah. So listen, I don't want to waste any time. Uh, we want to get a lot of in depth conversation on this, so let's get it moving. So our guest tonight has been a journalist for the past 12 years working for both The Daily Beast and Politico. He is currently the Washington investigative correspondent for NPR and the author of the book Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Please welcome Tim Mack to the show. Tim, how are we doing? Hey, we're doing good. Good, good, good. Uh, so, uh, I just, I said it already once, but I want to say I really did enjoy the book, um, I was fascinated by some of the things that I learned. So uh, thank you for writing it. No, it, I, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, it, it was definitely a book that was designed to be read by all sorts of audiences. I would agree with that. So uh, let me start off by saying as a uh, NRA lifetime member, which I happen to be, I thought I had a good grasp on the inner workings of the NRA. This book made me realize that I knew next to nothing. So with so many topics for you to investigate and, and write a book about, which obviously, I mean, you really did a lot of research for this book. What made you delve so deeply into an organization whose purpose is to defend the Second Amendment? Are, are you yourself passionate about gun rights and the Second Amendment, or is it just an interesting topic for you? Well, I think for me, the NRA is just one of the most controversial and powerful organizations in this entire country. And it's kind of a black box, right? It, you, you mentioned it's hard to know who the people are behind the scenes or what the personalities are really like, what's really happening, how powerful is the NRA, how, what are their weaknesses. And you've heard all this, these stories about you know, alleged misconduct inside this organization. And you think, well, how much of it is real and how much of it is exaggerated? And that's really what I wanted to get into. Not only explain who these people are who head up this incredibly powerful organization, but also take you behind the scenes and show you how decisions were made, uh, what the reaction was during key events in our gun politics, and so on. And that's what I, I think Misfire does. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you said something in there that I really find to be true, which is a lot of times I find that our media is, it's very hard to kind of get a grasp on like what you know, where, where to find your sources and what to believe and which side is kind of giving you the, the straight dope. And I felt that the book did a really nice job of sort of finding a balance. So I give you a lot of credit as a journalist for, for trying to strike that balance and, and to really be fair with things. Thank you. I mean, it, it wasn't a book about, Hey, here's the right position to have on guns or gun policy. It was about organization, the organization. And accountability, right? It's about transparency for an organization that means a lot to many people in America and also uh, an organization that a lot of people in America don't think very highly of. 
So I really felt this to be a book that could be read by either of those parties um, and, and kind of write this story about what was happening behind the curtain and bring some accountability to that story. Tim, I, I was skeptical going in. I kind of was expecting to to see a little bit of what Mike was talking about, but I was happy that I, I didn't. I, I felt like, like you said best, it really is written that uh, no matter what side of the, the gun Second Amendment debate you're on, you, you could read this book and, and enjoy it. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask was, you know, I kind of came across this thought as I was reading it is if the average person looked at Wayne, you know, looked at a picture of Wayne from any NRA marketing, they would think, you know, he fits the part of a CEO. Um, your book defines Wayne, Wayne's personality a little differently. Um, can you get, can you give our listeners a description of his character? Sure. So Wayne LaPierre, you're right. I mean, when people see the marketing images and the PR version of Wayne LaPierre, they see this kind of staunch Second Amendment supporter giving well dressed speeches. <laughs> yeah, um, but when you when you talk to people who have known him for thirty plus years, some of his closest friends, some of his close associates, they paint a picture of a very anxious person, a weak willed person, almost like a cowardly person, someone who's kind of um, dominated by this a self pity. Poor him. And and this is this is something. Would you that's even really say dominant. easily manipulated? I would say he's someone who's driven primarily by fear. He's so okay. he's so worried about what what each turn of the wheel means for him personally that that leads to easy manipulation by other powerful people. He seemed to be taken advantage of, and and then eventually just forgot his compass, his moral compass. Yeah, well, so the book opens up with the scene, right, of Wayne LaPierre on his wedding day. Yeah. You'll remember yeah. that. Yes. And he, he he's, doesn't want to get married, and he, he talks to his, to his friends all week saying, hey, I, I really I don't want to get married. And he's outside with his best man, and his best man says, hey, I don't think you should get married today. <laughs> um, and the best man slaps a $100 bill on the dashboard. I would have left for a hundred bucks. I would have left my altar for a hundred bucks. <laughs> and says, hey, I'll drive you right away. I don't think the hundred bucks was the bribe. It was just to say like, we got we, we the got provisions. <laughs> We've got the provisions we need to get out of here. Yeah, no. yeah. So, you know, a couple of things that I noticed on this topic is, so first off, you mentioned the wedding scene, which is exactly like you said, it's how the book starts. Yeah. And throughout the book, starting with that scene and many, many scenes, and and not just him, but other people within the organization, you do a really nice job of putting the reader in the room, right? So it, it's as if like you're there and you're watching it, um, you know, from a bird's eye view, watching from above and seeing this all this whole thing happen. And sort of the um, the metaphor that I used for for Wayne is he's sort of like Mr. Magoo. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is if you ever watch Mr. Magoo or, you know, the cartoon, you know, he's driving down the road and behind him, chaos is in his wake. And like, you know, everything is just crashing and burning around him, but he's haplessly navigating the road and, and, and somehow everything is working out. Okay. Uh, for a very long time for Mr. Magoo yeah. and for Wayne as well. And you know, that, that's kind of how, what I was thinking of this whole time, but uh, You're welcome to use that in your next book about him, Tim. That's right. You can no, call actually, him people have described, people who have known him for a long time have described him to me exactly that way. So <laughs> it's an apt, it's actually an apt 
<laughs> comparison. You're not the first person to think of it. I'm yeah, yeah. And well, that Mike, I, I was giving you credit for it. Tim's telling us you're not I, the first. I well, I like that I'm in good company at least. At right? least that. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing that I liked that I noticed about it, and that I kind of liked as I read the book, was he sort of had. There's this catch twenty two with Wayne. You tell me if I'm right about this, Tim. Sure. Sure. Um, I find that he's this weak-willed sort of, you know, spineless. I actually called him a jellyfish at one point yeah. too. This kind of spineless personality. So to make up for it, he surrounds himself with these really strong personalities. But then the rub is that because he surrounds himself with these strong people and he's weak-willed, they sort of run roughshod over him. So he can't he can't get out of this cycle because it's he accepts he, it. He needs these strong people, but then they take advantage of him. And then, you know, he further needs them more because he doesn't know how to ha handle things. Is is that uh, you know, is, would you agree with that? I think that's a really good way. I I mean, I I went into this book thinking the NRA was this like ruthlessly competent and effective organization, right? And then you just kind of pull the curtain back and you look behind and this totally dominated by infighting and these weird personalities. You've got Wayne LaPierre surrounded by, like you say, these very strong-willed people who kind of have their way with the organization to the tune of millions, tens of millions of dollars and, and this kind of the, the, the ruins that the NRA finds itself in right now. Uh, and it, it's just a really, it's been a weird, it's been a weird and interesting story to tell. So you didn't, when you went into this, you didn't know, you, you just assumed the NRA was that, that, perfect marketing picture of Wayne that that's what you thought of before you went into there this There was book. no other kind of public uh, version of it, right? No, no. they're really, honestly, yeah. until I got into firearms, you know, I just, I thought the same thing you thought. I thought the NRA was doing a good job and was there. They've been around for a really long time. They've evolved. They were the, they're the forefront of, of gun safety, right? Of, of gun, gun safety classes. Um, I had no idea until, you know, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in a little bit, but the, the lawsuits and, and, and the bankruptcy, some of the other stuff coming out, that there was any problem. So I'm, were you shocked when you, when you, what was the, what was the first moment that you realized it wasn't what you thought? I don't know. I, I think you, you really, you really started on a good point here with Wayne, because I, I really thought that Wayne LaPierre and the NRA were, you know, uh, were this ruthlessly effective organization, and it turns out to just be chaos and pandemonium everywhere, disorganization, mismanagement, and corruption. Um, and just starting to make those first few connections and and sources inside the organization. I, I want the the listeners out there to understand this. This book, the amount of work and research that went oh, into yeah. this, I mean, I I, I honestly, I don't know how you managed it. I, I And I mean that as a compliment. And also I'm just like dumbfounded by how much is out there and how much you had to sift through. And, you know, there's one point in the book that um, I found very interesting. And I'm sure this was a big part of your research and a big turning point for you as well. The book sort of paints the picture that the NRA used to be known for sort of what I would call good old fashioned lobbying with some antiquated boys club rules, if you will. But a lot of things seem to change after Sandy Hook, right? So you point out that after this tragedy, the NRA's tactics switched from a focus on creating, uh, from what used to be lobbying to creating what's now a culture war. And some would say that Wayne was winning at every turn at this point, right? So he's navigating the Sandy Hook tragedy and he does it well, I would say, to some extent. Um, he puts a stop to the Mansion Toomey legislation that's happening shortly after. And at the, at, 
at the next turn, he's driving up membership through the Obama years, right? So those all seem like good things if you're a pro-gun person who wants sort of these things defeated and legislation defeated. Um, but what were some of the consequences of creating this culture war? Well, so uh, I, I want to kind of, there, there are two really good and interesting points that, that you bring here. We can start with the culture war, but we can also talk about what happened during the Obama years. I think the culture war thing, you know, you talk to a lot of people who are Second Amendment enthusiasts and they join the NRA or they support the NRA because it, uh, it backs um, the Second Amendment and they, they, they're there for the firearms issue. But the culture war expands the NRA, right, into something that it traditionally hasn't been. Uh, to be just a kind of conservative organization and and concerned first and foremost with portraying um, the NRA as this kind of defender of all your rights and not just the Second Amendment. And so it brings the NRA into all sorts of uh, political battlegrounds, if you will, uh, that it traditionally hasn't. And, you know, not every, as you know, not every Second Amendment uh, advocate is, uh, you know, a Christian evangelical conservative, right? Very true. Um, and, and, and so it can alienate people as it does bring other people in. Yeah. I, you know, I have to say that, and I'm going to be very transparent to the listeners out there and, and to you as well. As I was reading the book, the part about the Obama years and Sandy Hook, there was a moment there where you sort of lost me. And I was like, I don't know. I feel like this is sort of taking a little bit of a, of a lean and, I, and I'm starting to sense a little bit of like, uh, your opinion maybe is what I was feeling. And as I read the whole book, what I realized later on, um, was the fact that I guess I fell for the culture war too. And what I mean by that is Keith and I say all the time on this show that we believe the second amendment is apolitical. We believe it's a right for everybody. It's, it's a right for straight, gay, left, right, you know, you name it. Americans. It, it's Americans. Americans. It, it's a right for Americans. That's what we truly believe in, right? And I realized that, man, maybe like I was, fell, you know, fell victim to this culture war. And for me, a couple of the consequences, if you will, and I'm not saying they were, they were good or bad, they're just consequences, was uh, we saw every town in, in Michael Bloomberg. We saw that as a rise of which I was shocked, Tim, when you when you quoted the amount of money that Michael Bloomberg was what two hundred and eighty million dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's bonkers, and you know certainly you could argue that uh, that Trump's presidency, you could say, came out of a culture war and sort of you know what was going on in our country during during that election. So I, I don't know if you if you feel those are consequences of that, but you know that's how I felt reading it. Well, I think I mean the NRA definitely had a big role to play in the election of Donald Trump. I mean, there are huge seismic forces happening in our country back then and now, as I'm sure you guys talk about all the time in, uh, on the show, right? But, um, uh, but the NRA definitely played a big part in the 2016 election. They, they spent more supporting Donald Trump than even Donald Trump's own super PAC, yeah. won $30 million to support his election. Um, he was, ho he was hoping for that again, but uh, too much going on. Yeah, I mean, and we can get to that. The NRA is in, a, in an incredibly difficult position now. But in 2016, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine, but the NRA hasn't always been involved in presidential races. Yeah, we, I, was, I, I couldn't believe they, they only backed four presidents. Is that correct? That's right. Um, so the, the, the NRA traditionally has tried to build a coalition of Democrats and Republicans on the issue that you guys were just talking right? Yep. That the Second Amendment is not a partisan issue. And, and the NRA of 
pre-Sandy Hook really felt that its most powerful and important strategic allies were those moderate Democrats so they could reach across the aisle. Right. And well, and, that was um, Wayne. That was what Wayne was, right? For many, for, for many years. But I think, you know, Sandy Hook changed a lot of things. It made yeah. it harder for Democrats to work with the NRA. It made it harder for the NRA to work with Democrats. Yeah. We've got these major changes in our politics now that's become more polarized. Um, but I think the, the NRA really felt that it could make a lot of money raising money and, and membership on not just the, the gun issue itself, but on broader culture, cultural issues separate and apart from the gun issue itself. If Wayne was a different CEO, right, I don't know that they would have switched directions as much as they had switched and, and even have moved to this culture war because that was such a reaction, <clears throat> and it was a reaction from Ackerman McQueen, in my opinion, that kind of convinced him that this was the way he needed to go. Yeah. One one thing that, that happened after Sandy Hook that was interesting is I, I try to bring the reader behind the scenes. Like, what was it like? to be at NRA headquarters on the day of Sandy Hook or while the lobbyists are working on Mansion Toomey, what was it like to be there? And what were they thinking? And what were they doing? And one of the things that was true about Sandy Hook is that it radicalized all sorts of people and it changed a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of minds. It was a super polarizing event. Out of the shadows of Sandy Hook comes every town and this gun safety movement, but it also pushes the NRA further to the right. A lot of yeah. members of the yeah. NRA think, oh, well, the Obama administration is going to support new gun regulations. That's going to affect me. But at NRA headquarters, what was really interesting was there was so much anger and ferocity that was directed at the NRA. These guys are picking up their phones and they're hearing death threats and they're getting letters and they're they're feeling like very personally threatened by all the all the events that unfolded after Sandy Hook. And that changes the mindset and the attitude of the people in that building in a way that, you know, that 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 makes sense, right? That after after being threatened and and being made to to be in fear for your life, um, uh, you, you might change your mind on 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 the various strategies. Yeah, one of the things that I felt. Uh, now that now that we're talking about this, that's interesting. Is you know we've said it on this show a, a number of times, but you know there was definitely a time in our history where guns were not so polarizing, right? Like I I always use uh, like the Kennedy years, pre, you know, presidential years, where like I feel like back then like guns were just people had them, some didn't, and you know the president didn't get so involved in it, and you know it was sort of more apolitical back then, and um, you know it's definitely changed, and I think we're now at the most polarized point in our hopefully the most hopefully it doesn't get any worse yeah in our nation's history on this topic but I, it kind of makes me wonder if this was the turning point and, and you certainly paint it that way so um you know it, it very there well there are a lot be. of turn there there are a ton of turning points i mean another turning point you can look back at and, and point to columbine as, as like a big yeah. turning point right as, sure. as one of the one of the first kind of big mass shootings at a school that turn people's mind like but, we're but the about nra handled, yeah, but the nra right. handled that differently than sandy hook much differently much differently i mean at the, um you know the nra wayne lapierre per, uh, went and testified on capitol hill saying that he would be willing to expand background checks Correct. even though they ultimately didn't do that 
Well, you you probably Tim could even go back to like the Reagan years, like the Reagan assassination attempt because of the whole Brady campaign. So like that was probably another turning point. If we go back, that's that's not in the scope of this book, but you know, you're right. There's a lot of these moments, I guess, in our history. I think it, you know, the, the issue kind of moves in these spurts, right? That um, it's not a coincidence that we're always talking about gun politics in in like big events. You know, whether it's 1977, you know, the Cincinnati revolt for the NRA when grassroots members kick out a bunch of executives and redefine the NRA to be a much more politically active organization, making the modern NRA as we know it, or Sandy Hook or Parkland or, or any, you know, Mansion Toomey events, just kind of single events like that. Um, and that's where these, these, um, these changes kind of come about. When Mike and when Mike told me that we uh, were going to read this book about the downfall of the NRA, the first thing I thought about was, I hope there is a convicted Russian spy. And thank <laughs> well, God you had what? a convicted Russian spy. There is a convicted Russian spy. <laughs> so Maria Butano, right? Uh, while, while I'm definitely not a fan of Wayne, I, I do think after reading the book, I felt like he seemed to, you know, he managed to disassociate himself with that sort of affair and, you know, help me understand what, what really what that kind of had brought my conclusion to the whole book. And we've been talking a lot about Wayne, but really, you know, Maria, it seemed to me like it was a perfect another example of how the NRA has gone a very long time without proper checks and balances. And how has that happened? So just for those who are, the, who are uninitiated, Maria Butina is this Russian citizen who um, started showing up in the United States about five, six years ago. And to everyone, she's describing herself differently. She's saying that she's a Russian government uh, employee or an interpreter, or she says she's a student. Which she, she was a student at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, she says that... Uh, She's a small business owner or many other things, or just a, a, a gun rights activist. And I kind of entered this reporting project thinking, what was it, if anything, that the Russian government wanted to give the NRA or how did it help the NRA? And what I realized was the NRA totally got played by this one Russian individual um, and that she used the NRA for her own ends and it was easily manipulated. Well, she, she, uh, you know, really her and, uh, torsion, right. Felt that this, the NRA was their best chance at getting into, you know, the U S politics. Yeah. What was the part of the book? And I, and I'm not going to remember, I don't think I'm gonna remember all you, but Tim help me out here where they felt that the, their assumption, I guess you would say was that they felt that there was going to be the Republicans were the best sort of, option for them that a Republican candidate was going to win. And the and, NRA was their best way to get in. Right. That was the three things. And they were kind of right on, on all those accounts. Right. So it's amazing that they were able to sort of figure that out for one thing. But do you agree that Wayne sort of, again, Mr. Magoo sort of haplessly navigated through this and I'm curious if that lack of checks and balances, was that a result of his savviness or just complete negligence on the part of the board? Like they just, they just didn't know what the heck was going on in the organization. Yeah. I, th I think that Wayne is known for this kind of management by chaos style and the Magoo, yeah. the Magoo comparison is apt in a way, I guess, but it, it would be as if Magoo knew and was 
super happy to see that this is the way it is, that, that everything's decentralized, it's chaotic, nothing's making sense. Um, but in, in that chaos, uh, Wayne is able to keep control in this weird way, right? That he's still able to keep power because he's turning people against each other and, um, and nothing is really very settled and, and secure and stable. So I'm just going to go back um, a little bit there, Tim, because we kind of we got away from where I was. Where my question was, but um, so do you? You kind of I think you agree with me that he sort of Wayne sort of kept him, his distance from that somehow, but it did show to me that the NRA has gone, uh, you know, a very very long time with a board of directors that doesn't know their responsibilities. And how how do you think that's happened? What, what what are some of the things that have led? You know, obviously, I, you know, again, I don't want to give away the entire book. I'll let, and I want to let you talk a little bit. But obviously, paying off board members hasn't been a wise choice. Well, so the NRA has seventy six board members. Very large. I could not it's believe that number. Extremely large. One one person very familiar with the board called it like the Politburo, right? It's like a legislature almost, yeah. right? Yep. 76 people. And when you look at the backgrounds of the people on the board, you don't really get a lot of sense that these are people who have management backgrounds, yes. business backgrounds. Some of them do. Childress, Brunel. I mean, those guys are business owners. Yeah, but you think about how big the NRA is too and how many are qualified to oversee an organization that brings in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And when you did that, when that responsibility is so diffuse, um, people just think, hey, it's not, maybe, maybe it's not my problem. Um, and, and you see that. I would say that that's a common problem along the country in a lot of non for profits, not as large as the NRA, but sometimes. But what you find on the NRA that you don't find on some of these other places, at least that I know of, is like, you know, you find the Ted Nugents of the world. Like you have celebrities, you have sort of these like figureheads who, I mean, you think I could be Sometimes. wrong, but I don't know if Ted Nugent is really giving a shit about checks and balances. No. You know no, what I mean? I, like I, he doesn't care about that. No. You know, so. And a lot of those big name board members were paid on beknownst to the rest of the board. You know, right. I mean, it was just. Consulting, right? It, Consulting it, and. Whatever they build it as. I mean, Tim's probably better to quote some of that stuff than I am. I only read the book a week ago. Well, I think the thing is, right, that, that, that these people have the same access to the internet and news reports and public court filings and that we all do that, that, that we all do. Right. Yep. And I'm sure they're not immune to, to, to seeing what you see and what I see. And that is tens of millions of dollars of financial malfeasance and, and an organization that's bleeding membership. That's lost a significant percentage of its revenue that in 2018 almost couldn't make payroll. I mean, they know all of these <laughs> things. And the question is, the question is, um, why haven't they spoken out? And I think one of the big answers is that the powers is um, as spread out among 76 members. But I, I think another um, is that uh, there's a lot of these board members, I think part of their identity is their position in yeah, the NRA. Definitely. And yeah. I, I, it's so, hard for them to stand up individually or even in groups. Yep. and challenge the existing order. What's so weird, right? It's like if you look at the history of the NRA, the NRA has been a very raucous organization. It's kind of like the French Republic. Republics. It's always rebelling all the time. <laughs> but like, but like um, bunch of rebellious gun owners. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you think so? But the current state, you know, the current slate of the NRA um, is not that way at all. It's kind of handpicked to keep the existing 
officials in power. Yeah. Well, that um, yeah, I mean, Wayne made it like after all this last outing of uh, Ali. I mean, it was like th- you're either with Wayne or you're not. And I mean, if you're we'll not, get you're we'll not, get to that. Get there, I mean, but, that whole that well, whole thing. It, thank you. And I I I, I, I want to talk about. I mentioned it once already, but the Ackerman McQueen relationship, the NRA's longstanding marketing firm. I. I could. I just. I, I. I was riveted. I just couldn't stop learning about them. I was shocked at how that all worked out. I walked away with the impression that Acmac and Susan Lapierre were both major factors in. Again, I'm going to use this word. I, I hate using it, but manipulating Wayne to inappropriately use me- membership funds for their own personal benefit, and not the benefit of the NRA. You know, and this problem wasn't just you know, revealing through the publishing your book, but how hasn't this information been enough to remove Wayne? Like how, when, when, when you read this in public, right, it's just out. Anybody can read this. And and like you said earlier, a lot of this stuff is public knowledge. I just cannot understand how they haven't removed Wayne. I just don't, I don't, I can't figure it out. I mean, I think it really comes down to what we're talking about. The board of directors, right? The, 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 the head of the organization, is there and exists because the board of directors allows him to. And yeah, they I mean, they hire and fire him, right? They can, uh, and they haven't. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and that's where the responsibility for his continued existence as the head of the, of the NRA is. Yeah, but like, so Keith, you're bringing up uh, Ackerman McQueen, and you, yeah. you, you, you learn this in the book, right? So you learn this in the book. I knew, a, I knew there was a connection there as just sort of like an average gun owner, but I knew like NRA TV was a, pro, a product of there. They had know. this out of pocket policy, right? So, right? so the, the out of, can you explain the out of pocket? Yeah. I, Tim, Tim? I, I, I can butcher it if you'd like. Now let, <laughs> let's let Tim do it with some skill here. Can you well, explain so, the out of pocket, Tim? So what, you step back a little bit and you, you look at what is this book about? The book is really about tens of millions of dollars in private jets and travel to the Bahamas and lavish meals and, um, and you know, six figures in, in suits, Italian menswear for Wayne LaPierre on, uh, from which he hates by the way. Track. Right. He, he doesn't like wearing them. <laughs> um, but, and it's like, how did, how did senior NRA officials not know about this? How did this not right. come right. to the forefront earlier and one of the reasons is because of this kind of symbiotic relationship that nra officials had with ackerman McQueen, right for example you know top nra officials like wayne and uh and others love to go to this really pricey italian restaurant in alexandria virginia called landines um but you know putting thousands of dollars down every meal you go out for dinner is not a great look if you put the NRA card down. So what they did instead was that they would put the Ackerman McQueen credit card to pay for these expenses and for many other expenses like that. And then Ackerman McQueen would then bill that back to the NRA as if they were just billing their client for, you know, strategic messaging or PR or whatever, or NRA, you know, whatever else that the NRA had asked them to do. But they, but they used this project that you mentioned to kind of launder these expenses, right? <laughs> That's to, what I call it. <laughs> to, kind of, to kind of hide it, even from senior officials at the NRA um, who, would see, who would see these invoices for expenses from Akron McQueen and say, oh, well, that makes sense. They do a lot of work for us. Yeah, you know, it's funny because so there's two two takeaways on it from reading the book that I got from the whole Ackerman McQueen relationship. So one, you bring up 
in the book, you actually say it. What Ackerman was doing, uh, Ackerman McQueen, wasn't really illegal. It was maybe not ethical, but it wasn't illegal. But the NRA certainly, certainly was not doing the right thing, and it was certainly illegal. And as when we, when I started to get sort of a little more knowledgeable about the NRA, was right around, I would say like right after Sandy Hook, the Obama years, and I started to follow, I started to listen to some podcasts of my own about the the, the pro-Second Amendment world, and NRA TV was sort of coming into its own at that point. And I was watching shows with Coleon Noir and, you know, uh, you know, other personalities. And I thought as a, as a gun owner, I was like, this is great. Like it's a TV, it's a show I can watch. And I thought like, man, the NRA is doing the right thing. But again, this is me maybe be falling for that culture war piece because when you look at it from the lens of where your book takes us, you realize that it was never real and it was done very inefficiently and it was done to basically just filter in money, you know, and bring in money to both Ackerman McQueen and, you know, uh, Angus McQueen was like ruthless and just ran roughshod over Wayne. So ultimately, you know, what looked like good stuff as an NRA member, as an NRA member wasn't because who's ultimately who was paying for all this stuff, the NRA member, right? We're paying for these jets and these trips and these mansions and you know, and you think you're paying for lobbying and gun act advocacy. Yeah. I mean, Tim, can you talk about that a little bit? Cause you mentioned in the yeah. book how like ultimately who, who is the membership, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, so to do the reporting for this book was really hard. I mean, NRA officials are not known for speaking to journalists. Right. And so one of the big motivations for why people ended up speaking to me, I did over 120 interviews for this book with senior folks inside the NRA universe, right? And one of the big reasons they decided to speak to me was because they felt betrayed on behalf of the folks that really do spend the money, right? The blue collar folks are sending in five, 10, 15 bucks a month in hopes that it will promote a cause they really care about. But instead it's going to these private jets and it's going to these vacations and it's going to these lavish meals. And, you know, Susan LaPierre's hairstylist right. who she <laughs> hires uh, and, and had previously worked for, you know, Taylor Swift, um, that, that's, you know, that's not what, uh, the, the folks who fund the organization. Well, and you have million dollar donors in the NRA, but you have a lot of blue collar, you know, regular old people that are just, they just care about their gun rights and aren't million dollar donors, you know, and those people, they're not flying jets. They're not wearing, uh, you know, a thousand dollar Italian suit. So it really was a, um, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, another point that was made even from people who used to work at the NRA or still work at the NRA is, you know, that the, that when they're doing the culture war, right. There's this kind of down home, like, um, for the common man type messaging that comes from NRA TV and culture war type stuff, right. It's us versus them. But, you know, the lived, life of NRA officials did not match with that, right? Did not match with the kind of common man persona that they were supposedly using in their PR pushes. Can I ask you I, I, um, a little bit about Abra? I, I forgot her last name. I'm sorry. It's Abra Belke. Belke. That's it. Thank you. I I found myself really connecting with, you know, your introduction of her and, um, 
her time with the Sandy Hook period. Uh, do you talk to her still? How is she doing? Is she? Yeah, she's so Abra Belke is a is a lobbyist for the NRA or was a lobbyist for the NRA for a period of time in and around uh, the Sandy Hook period and also during the period that um, Mansion Toomey was being uh, put together and and as you guys all know uh, ultimately didn't pass in Congress. Right. right. Um, so Abra was someone who felt that look the uh, Americans have background checks on the vast majority of gun sales. Um, uh, the the NRA can get some things that are good for gun owners in a bill like Mansion Toomey. And what you have to give up is to cover most, the, the, the small remainder of gun sales and have a background check. She didn't, she didn't seem to have a problem with that. And she came to the NRA like this was her dream job, like right? She thought she was going to go there and get something done and be a part of something that she was very passionate about. Yeah, she she was someone who was super idealistic about the Second Amendment and, you know, came into this organization wanting to do good in Washington, D.C., which a lot of people come to Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think my first and, few and, trips there, I felt the same way, and then I quickly realized, now nah, that's maybe not the place for me. I don't want to give up on on there being, you know, good things that can happen in Washington, D.C., but I, I think a lot of people do leave disillusioned like Aberbelke yeah. ultimately did. Yeah. I, I appreciate you, and I, I agree with you for the most part about that, too. I mean, you can get things done, but it, it can be an intimidating place. And if you don't know what you're dealing with, it's a smack in the face to navigate, you know, how to make progress down there. Right. And you have to really kind of know what, what what's going on, but I guess, so you still talk to her. She's, she's like found a good place to be. And yeah, she, uh, I, I've been in touch with her over time. Uh, she is still in politics, um, and uh, yeah, she's she's doing work. Okay. So she landed on her feet. That's yeah, good. That's good to know. Yeah. yeah. So I want to kind of bring this back to Wayne for a second. So Keith mentioned Ackerman McQueen, and for anyone that uh, picks up this book, you'll learn a whole lot about that relationship. <laughs> as you said, it's this sort of symbiotic relationship, and you know, it's every time you think it can't get weirder, it gets, weirder. it's crazy, you know, and Ackerman McQueen and Wayne have this relationship for decades, right? For, I mean, for a very long time. And it's amazing to me as I read the book, because Yoda. I, yeah, it calls him as Yoda. I, I couldn't help as I read reading the book going, Wayne just has this weird knack for associating himself with snakes. And <laughs> He long he long conspires with Ackerman McQueen, like I said, for decades for personal gain. He's he's jet setting right, and then when the shit hits the fan, and and we're getting towards maybe the end of the book at this point, when the shit hits the fan, he looks to none other than Angus McQueen's overambitious son-in-law, who's a lawyer, Bill Brewer, as his legal counsel, and it starts off with Carry Guard, which you know. I'm not gonna go. That was the only thing he was supposed yep. to help with. And then basically Brewer kind of puppeteers Wayne like no one else ever has before. And ultimately Brewer ends up concocting the idea that a coup is forming against Wayne, which leads to a disastrous annual meeting in the spring of 2019, um, which I remember. I remember I was listening to some podcasts at that point and I was like sort of learning all this craziness. Oliver North is the president at that point. You were part of the press corps there, and you were there on that day, correct? 
That's right. Yeah. Can you walk us through that day? Because I want, I want to hear from someone who was there. (laughs) Okay. So this is one of the climactic scenes of the book, right? But to set the stage in 2018, the NRA is in such a terrible financial state that, like I said earlier, they almost couldn't make payroll. It's serious, in serious, serious trouble. And so Wayne turns to his old friend, Oliver North, and asks Oliver North to come into the NRA and be the president of the organization. And begs him. Help fundraise. Yeah, basically begs him and help fundraise their way out of this financial crisis. But as this is unfolding, Oliver North starts to have questions about where this money is going. It's going to Bill Brewer. It's going to all sorts of things that Oliver North isn't really sure is all that right. Can I stop you for one second? Let me stop you for one second. I want to point out that typically, and you point this out in the book, typically presidents are sort of a figurehead, but Ollie North, we're talking about a Marine. He's a a colonel. Yep. And and integrity is everything to him. So I just want to kind of lay that out there. and, and, And he wouldn't come on unless he had an agreement with Wayne that, if I'm coming on, I, I'm going to be involved. Hands on. Hands on. Yeah. So, he, he, yeah, he comes on and he is hands on. And it's a real problem for Wayne because he didn't want that. Where's the money going? And he starts demanding, hey, look, for us to figure out what to do with the NRA, for the NRA to be uh, financially responsible and to be on the right side of the law, we need to do an audit and figure out where all this money is going. And he's receiving a ton of pushback from Wayne and Bill Brewer and other people on that side of the equation. And so... This all comes to a head in 2019, just days before the annual meeting in Indianapolis. And Wayne LaPierre and Oliver North confront each other in a hotel suite in that city. And basically, um, uh, Wayne LaPierre said he's not going to support Oliver North's renomination as president. But but ultimately, you know, ultimately, it's this it's this very tense moment that's the culmination of a lot of chaos and backstabbing that's been happening at the highest levels of the NRA and among officials there, right? That, that it all comes to this culmination. And so none of us in the press corps at the time know this is happening. <laughs> oh have God. you guys ever been to an annual an NRA? We um, unfortunately have not. I have no, not. No. So if you, if you are an NRA member who's been a member for at least five years or you're a life member, you can go to this annual meeting, and, uh, uh, the members meeting, which is where members can give speeches and propose resolutions and ask questions of officials. I mean, it's historically the NRA has been a super grassroots organization. And so everyone arrives that day and something is just feeling weird in the air. There's been all these allegations of financial misconduct. No one has any answers. And there's this table up front with all the NRA officials on stage where they're supposed to be answering questions and giving speeches and such. And there's this placard there for Oliver North. But the chair's empty, and no one knows where Oliver North is. He's home. He had, he had left the previous <laughs> night after his confrontation with Wayne, um, and he just he has a friend of his read a letter that he that he's written Wh- saying which that he's not going to. His so, friend was uh, was Richard Childress, right? Richard Childress, right? And I I didn't realize that he was a board member of the NRA, but I'm a huge car guy, and I I love him for the racing side. But I was pretty impressed with the way he he helped his buddy Ollie out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Richard Childress kind of reads this letter to the audience and we're out there just totally dumbfounded. This is kind of one of those dramatic moments you don't really believe could happen. And then you're seeing like this organization. Had you started writing the book at this point? No, no. I, I, I hadn't started. 
but I was think I, I was definitely I definitely was thinking that this would be a good topic for <laughs> in around that time because you're watching this right and it's like brother against brother um, and this organization is just being torn apart from the inside by infighting and misconduct yeah, you're thinking, very much so there's a bigger story to tell here isn't there it it, it, it it's just been amazing it's been an amazing story to watch over what the last was, few you- years first these whistleblowers start to come forward about financial misconduct. And then, you know, Oliver North, there's got that Russian government agent that was convicted for infiltrating the organization. <laughs> you have the, and we haven't talked about the New York attorney general trying to shut the whole organization down. Well, that you're, you're seg, you're segueing into the, 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 my next question, but before you do, do you remember the first resolution for Wayne, you know, to be, terminated the very first i'm not sure it was the very first but i remember that there was a member named frank tate uh who was one of the people who put forward a resolution calling for either the censor uh censoring censoring wayne or censuring wayne or uh having him step down frank tate is uh, a longtime life member of the nra actually he's going to be on the ballot for the nra's board um in the next round of elections uh, Gotta go vote not, for Frank. Not, not supported by Wayne LaPierre and, and that crew, though. Um, he's kind of a reform-minded uh, uh, Second Amendment person, um, but he was someone who put forward one of the first um, one of the first resolutions, and it was just a real shock to hear this. You have to just—you guys have seen some coverage of the the floor debates at a um, Republican or Democratic presidential nominating sure. convention, right? Yes. So just imagine that, but it's the NRA and just NRA members, right? It's people yelling, it's people demanding to be heard, <laughs> it's officials on the from the front of the stage and people who support Wayne trying to shut the whole meeting down and other people trying to keep the meeting yeah. going. They're presenting resolutions. The resolutions are being read by the very people who are <laughs> who are who these um, these kind of rebels in the audience are trying to get kicked out of the Yeah, it could go on for hours, it's, right? It's, it's high drama, right? And Here's me as a reporter sitting in the audience and watching it all happen. What the <laughs> frivolously heck? taking what notes? The, yeah, I was, I was, I was feverishly. It tweeting. sounds like it was bonkers. I mean, it sounds like a a circus of the greatest magnitude from the way you're describing this. A real, yeah, and and really a sign of things to come because I think in 2019, no one really had a real sense of how deep the problems at the NRA was were. Yeah. Uh, and how many problems would emerge in the in the intervening couple of years? Yeah, so I, I want I want to let Keith get to his next question, but I just want to say that as I was reading this book, and I'm saying this is nonfiction. But if you wrote this as fiction, you you could you could sell it as that too. I mean, it it, it is unbelievable. Uh, that's you know. Funny. What what happened in this situation in this story? Well, on on to my last question with uh, Miss Attorney General Letitia James. On August sixth, two thousand twenty, you were the first one to break the story that that uh, uh, she was filing this lawsuit uh, against the NRA, seeking the dissolve of the organization. And in the conclusion of your book, you wrote, "I'm going to quote you." Uh, it is a it is corruption and financial mismanagement that have threatened the NRA's stability. But to its opponent's chagrin, the whole situation could be turned around with dedicated management. The passion of millions of members will remain there to be mobilized if and when it turns around. So, Tim, do you think the NRA can survive this, or is this just the nail in the coffin? I think my point 
in writing something like that, right, is is to say that the gun the issue of gun politics is not so simple that if the NRA goes away, the issue is resolved, right? Mm. <laughs> that the millions of people who support the NRA uh, today, if it were gone tomorrow, those people will still like you two will still exist and still will be advocating on behalf of the same ideas tomorrow as you did yesterday. It'll it'll be it'll definitely be splintered, right? It won't be it'll be fragmented. Um you know, there's look, if you if you talk to lawmakers and you ask them, why are you worried about the NRA or what gives the NRA its power? They'll say they'll say, look, money is important, but it's not everything. A lot of organizations have a lot of money, right? The NRA has a lot of money. It's not the biggest kid on the block when it comes to just that issue. What lawmakers are really worried about is uh, their phone lines getting jammed up yeah. or their inboxes getting flooded or getting yelled at at a, at a town hall. That's that's really where um, the NRA's power comes from. It's from people who make their voice heard, and and, and that's kind of what really motivates a lot of lawmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that if the NRA, you know, the New York Attorney General wants to shut them down for all for some of the misconduct, a lot of the misconduct that we've been discussing on this show, um, financial malfeasance, <laughs> misconduct. You know, they're in a non. That's what so there, are, there are limits to. To what uh, to what people can do with nonprofit money? Well, that that's what think- the law that's what the lawsuit is based on 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 those facts those those misconduct mm-hmm. you know facts. But speaking as two individuals that live in New York, Mike, I think you're going to agree with me. She's she wants to shut the NRA down because New York is anti-gun and they want to. <laughs> well, she just announced her candidacy for governor. Yeah, right? they, so they want to control. They want to control guns more than they do today, and and this is their way in. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be brought, Tim. That's not what I'm trying to say. The NRA has done some things that they should have to answer for, and I think the way they should answer for it is Wayne should be out and somebody else should be in. Right. The membership shouldn't <clears throat> have to lose the organization. Right. right. Over this, but it's but not without. It's not without uh, that. That there is a serious possibility that. A judge could rule in her favor and uh, yeah. the officer's favor yeah. and dissolve the NRA. I agree. Right? Definitely. I agree. It's a nonprofit organization. So it, it should exists. have never got to that. And if 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 they had if if Wayne had listened earlier and righted the ship and gotten compliance, they wouldn't be in the sh- situation there. Ollie North could have fixed a lot of this and if, if he had been given the you know the yep. ability to do so, I think we would have seen a different outcome here. But you know, obviously as a as a gun rights person, I don't want to see them dissolved. But I do definitely want to see change in leadership. I do. We've want been to talking see, about that before the lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm a life member, but I have been very. Uh, I've pulled away from the NRA a lot based on what's happened in the past. You know, past few years, or at least what I've learned in the past few years. So, so Tim, uh, you know, the book was excellent. We really did like it. Um, I I couldn't put it down. You know, honestly. Uh, so, where can people get their hands on both the hard copy and the audiobook versions of Misfire? Yeah, anywhere where fine books are sold. I mean, I, I encourage folks who are who are interested in picking up a book about the inner workings of the NRA to go to their local bookstore, or you can get it online at you know at, at various booksellers. Um, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't, I hope, it shouldn't be hard, too hard to find. So, Tim, I want to thank you for coming on the show to discuss the book. Um, I found Misfire to be both eye-opening and entertaining, uh, with extreme attention to detail. Uh, it would truly be a, a good read, I feel, for uh, those who cherish the Second Amendment as well as those who abhor it. And as you said earlier uh, in the show, it really isn't meant to be one way or the other. It's meant for people to be informed, and I think everybody can find something in it. 
So I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And to everyone listening, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your day to tune into our show. Be sure to pick up a copy of Misfire at your local bookseller. If you like this interview, be sure to share it with friends and help keep the Second Amendment alive and well. 